Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We love your church. We love your people. We love your word. Most of all, we love your son, who is the remedy for everything that I will speak about today. So, Father, even now, before we start, I pray that you would firmly plant the remedy for the wrath of God in our hearts. Pray, Father, that you would use this message to draw some to Christ, that they would repent and believe and experience the, the transforming sanctification, the, the transformation of their hearts, the power to to break the habits of canceled sin. Would you cancel their sin today, Father, by your grace? Would they plead, by your grace, Father, would you give them the capacity to plead with you that you would rescue them from the wrath to come and the wrath that is already coming? I pray, Father, that this would not strike anyone as anything less than the authoritative word of God this morning. I pray, however, Father, that you would protect us from error that may come from my heart or mouth. May everything that is said and received today be from your word, which is truth. Your word is truth. So counsel us today, Father. May we be faithful to the whole counsel of God, you are indeed the wonderful counselor. And so give us, Father, the grace to receive your counsel, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. We come this morning once again to Romans chapter 1. If you're new with us today, we've been focused on this section of Scripture for quite a while already. And, and so I want to begin this morning by reading our text for today. So if you have your Bible, please stand with me. And we are going to read Romans 1, 24 through 32. Romans 1, 24 through 32. Now, I have a, a long way to go and a short time to get there. So hang on. I'm going to try to move quickly uh, throughout this morning. Romans 1, 24 through 32. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonoring passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up the natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them, uh, gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. 
They are full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They are gossips and slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. He who has ears to hear, let him hear the words of the Lord. And you may be seated. When we think about Paul's letter to the Romans, the first thing that should come to our minds is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The thesis statement of this inspired letter are the famous words of the Apostle Paul in verses 16 and 17 of this same chapter from which we've just read. And here's what Paul says. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The reason this is such an important statement is that while the gospel of God's righteousness is being revealed, the message of God's wrath is also being revealed. The reason there is a need among the nations for the great good news is because there is also a terrifying bad news. Namely, that the just and holy God to whom we are responsible must judge all unrighteousness. Let me say it again. He must, if he is a just God, he must judge all unrighteousness. And the reason you should be concerned about this is because every person in the world, apart from the Spirit, stands before God as unrighteous. No exceptions. That is, all of us are sinners. We are sinners by birth. We are sinners by choice. By birth, we inherit Adam's sin. If you prefer the theological terms on this, you can say that Adam's sin was imputed to us by virtue of his federal headship. In any case, we are all sinners by birth. On the other hand, we are also sinners by choice. As Paul will say in Romans 3.23, and this is kind of the point of of this whole section, uh, chapters 1, And two, and into chapter three, Paul's establishing one fact, that all, how many? All, you know what the Greek word here is? All. (laughs) All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All. As Paul will say in Romans 23, 3.23, we've talked about this before, what it means to be short, fall short of the glory of God. It's not that we were aiming for it and trying to hit it. We didn't care a bit about the glory of God. We didn't want God. 
We don't want him messing with our lives. We don't want him telling us what to do. All of us are like that, by birth and by choice. And, and every time we sin, we do it because we want to. James chapter 1 makes it abundantly clear. To be sure, the theological bullseye of these first few chapters is that no matter who you are, no matter what your parentage or pedigree, whether you grew up religious or irreligious, educated or otherwise, Churched or unchurched, it doesn't matter. You are a sinner. John Locke, John Locke and B.F. Skinner were wrong when they postulated that man is born tabula rasa, that he is a blank slate at birth, neither good nor bad. God says otherwise. Namely, that we are born with a predisposition towards sin. We are fundamentally self-centered rather than God-centered or others-centered. We neither love God nor do we love people. We love self. And that's exactly, ironically, what the world says is the cure for all of your ills. Just love yourself more. You know what? If you love yourself more, you're going to get more of what you've always got. And it's not good. This reality is neatly packaged in the biblical doctrine of total depravity, which teaches not that we are as bad as we could be, but that every part of our being as humans is stained by sin. The way we think, it's called the noetic effect of sin. The, even the way that we think about ourselves and about everything around us is stained by sin. And because our hearts are naturally bent towards sin, we commit acts of sin in word and in thought and in deed and because of this polluted condition, this polluted status in the eyes of God, all men are under the wrath of divine punishment of God that is being revealed. And I need to emphasize again here, this is a present indicative. This, it, it, God's wrath is being revealed. But only those who have eyes to see can see it. Now, some have objected that God is too gracious and loving to act in wrath against anyone. Rather, they suggest that all of God's judgments are designed for correction and repentance, rehabilitation, transformation. And you know what? At the end of this message, I'll demonstrate that, that that's not entirely wrong. But what they're saying is wrong, that God is too gracious to judge. They say judgment only relates, God only relates to humans as a father and never as a judge. But this is inconsistent with what God's word teaches. I would argue that when Paul says the wages of sin is death in Romans 3.23, he's not talking about a family relationship. He's not talking about the relationship of a father and a son. Rather, he's talking about a relationship, the relationship of a judge and a criminal. 
For just a moment, consider the following texts. Ezekiel 18.4, the soul that sins shall die. Matthew 25.41, in the last day, the king will say, depart from me, you accursed ones, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's, that's not correction. That's not hopeful. Romans 1.32, they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such, such things deserve to, to die, not be spanked, not be disciplined, but to die. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8, the Lord Jesus will, will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, afflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not correction. This is a relatively small sample of such statements of divine vengeance, retribution, and punishment in the Bible against those who refuse to obey the gospel, who turn their backs on God's gracious invitation. But as David Klotfelter suggests, these should be sufficient evidence to make the point. He writes, what is promised to sinners as sinners is punishment. There is none, in, in none of these statements, any hint that the purpose of that punishment is for the reformation of the sinner. In fact, the plain implication of, of them all is that sinners will be punished because it is just for them to be punished. End quote. Jonathan Edwards drives this point home even further when he writes, and I quote, to say that vengeance, wrath, fury, indignation, fiery indignation, wrath without mixture, etc., means a minor, wholesome, fatherly discipline designed for the good only of the subjects is the same thing as to say that the inspired writers were grossly ignorant of the proper and common use of language. If words mean anything, they don't mean, in this case, that wrath means correction, or that there is intended to give any hope in it. At the risk of belaboring the point, allow me to let David Klotfelter offer a final word here. He writes, I do not see any alternative but to believe that God punishes sin because it deserves to be punished. It is just of him to punish sin, and because it is just for God to punish sin, God's punishment of the wicked can be said to glorify him. He is doing what is right. It reveals his character, reinforces the sanctity of his moral law that has been broken and counterbalances the damage done to his honor and majesty by the disobedience of his creatures. As such, the punishment of the wicked is good in and of itself, regardless of whether it results in their repentance or salvation. God's wrath 
is a righteous wrath. God's wrath is a holy wrath. God's wrath is good. Friends, I realize that hardly anyone talks about these things anymore. And that's a significant part of the problem. Those who have been trusted with the word of the Lord are no longer proclaiming the word of the Lord. There is a famine in the land for hearing the word of the Lord. Listen, if any part of the Bible is true, it's all true. If it is from God, then it is all true. We dare not skip these things. How are people to know that they need God's redeeming grace if they are not acquainted with God's righteous wrath? Paul wants you to know about God's righteous wrath so that you will flee to the remedy. That you would flee to Christ. He is your hope. He is your only hope. So by way of review, we've been talking about this for a few weeks because that's what the text demands here are some of the things we've learned. We've talked about the doctrine of depravity this morning. We've also talked about a defense of the wrath of God, which I've been giving again this morning. We've obviously talked about the objects of God's wrath, namely sinners. A couple of weeks ago, we learned some of the features of God's wrath, which I won't rehearse a third time. Over the past two weeks, we've learned reasons for the wrath of God. But before we dive into our text for this morning, I, I want to introduce you to five kinds of wrath. Five kinds of wrath revealed in the Bible. And here they are, and I'm, and I'm just bullet pointing these, and, and I'm going to say very little about each one, just to give you a taste of it. And I, and I think there's actually more than these five, but we won't quibble about that. Number one, there is eternal wrath. We talk about eternal wrath, we're talking about the lake of fire, we're talking about hell, perdition, where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. That's eternal wrath. And then there is an eschatological wrath, and this is a kind of wrath that will fall on the earth at the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. He will come as the conquering king, and there will be wrath. We see it not only in Matthew 25, but we see it in Revelation, the book of Revelation, chapters 6 through 19. And then there is cataclysmic wrath. Think of Noah and the great flood, the deluge by which God killed every man, woman, and child because he said that the thoughts and intentions of their hearts were only evil continually. So he saved Noah. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He and his seven family members, his wife and children and in daughters-in-law. Another example of cataclysmic wrath would be what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah. If you're wondering what that must have been like, think of Pompeii, because we have 
We have no artifacts left over from Sodom and Gomorrah. Nobody's really sure where that was, but we are familiar with Pompeii. We know that in the 70s AD, fire rained down on that city. It's very, very similar to the description of what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. And something I didn't know about Pompeii, because if you get online, usually, it used to be, if you got on, online, you would see the various digs, and you would see some of the, uh, the really amazing frescoes that were, uh, that were on the walls of that city as they've been removing ash for decades now, and finding uh, the people who were killed there. And we don't have time to talk about that, but the other thing that they found were many, many frescoes that you have not seen, no doubt, because they, the vast majority of them were pornographic and even homosexually pornographic. I can't help but believe that this was cataclysmic wrath, the likes of which had not been seen since Sodom and Gomorrah. And then there is what we might call consequential wrath. It's the kind of wrath that, that uh, Brings as, it's brought as a natural consequence of people's sinful actions. And then there might be what we call, in fact, this is the whole point of this message, the wrath of abandonment. Or as theologians call it, the wrath of judicial abandonment. This is God the judge, judging sinners, and doing it not by volcanic ash, but by abandoning them. You think of Samson, who God, you know, the original Superman, right? Who had more power than any physical power than any other human being on earth. And yet he, he turned away from the Lord. And his unbelieving wife was determined to find the source of his strength so she could turn him over to his enemies. And finally he gave in and told her. And when, he, when she cut his hair, which the Lord had forbidden for him to do, um, she woke him and said, the Philistines are coming. And he said, then I will stand and shake myself and the power will come and I will release myself from these bonds and the text says, but Samson did not know that the Lord had left him. He abandoned him. This is the wrath of judicial abandonment. And the point of this text before us this morning is that when people abandon God, God abandons them. To what does God abandon those who abandon him? Well, this brings us to the substance of God's wrath and to our text this morning. What exactly does God do to people and nations who abandon the Lord? Well, he abandons them. That is, he withdraws his hand of blessing and protection and, listen, moral restraint. Listen, if there has ever been in our past an element of moral restraint in our country, it has been because of the grace of God. 
And we see, we see this, this idea of abandonment three times in our, in our text where Paul repeatedly says, verse 24, look at verse 24. God gave them over, verse 26. God gave them over, verse 28. God gave them over. The phrase gave them over is actually in the Greek, it's only one word. It is paradidomi. And it means, I'm sorry, it is, yes, paradidomi. It means to hand over or to deliver or to give someone up, to hand someone over as to the police or to the courts, to betray as Judas did to Jesus. For example, an example of how this word is used in the New Testament is found in Matthew 5.25 where Jesus says this, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to the courts unless your accuser hands you over to the judge and the judge hands you over to the guard and you be put in prison. This is what that word means. God gave them over. The difference in our text, however, is that God is not abandoning sinners to other people. He's abandoning them. He's abandoning them to their to their own selves, to their lusts, to their impulses, to their deviant desires. To what does God abandon people when they abandon him? Well, first he abandons them to their lusts. Their lusts. Look at verses 24 and 25. Therefore, paradidomi, God gave them over to their lusts, the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the, the truth of God for a lie and, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The therefore at the beginning of this verse points back to the three reasons the wrath of God is being revealed against the against all ungodliness and wickedness of men. And, and we looked at that over the last couple of weeks. Namely, here are the three reasons. Number one, they suppressed the truth of God in unrighteousness. Number two, they've denied the revelation of God, which, by which every man, every man, woman, and child on earth knows intuitively that there is a God. And, and thirdly, they have exchanged the worship of God for idols. They exchanged the worship of the true God for idols of their own making with laws that they knew they could, they could keep because they were consistent with their lusts. How does God respond when people or nations abandon him? Well, he gives them over to their epithumia, their strong desires, it's, which is often translated as their lusts. In this case, it's a strong sexual desire. It's a dominating, enslaving sexual desire. If we had time, we could look at statistics about the phenomenal increase in the use of birth control among teenagers, the number of unwed mothers, 
the number of abortions, etc. Beloved, this is not merely a, a phenomenon in our own country. It is the judgment of God upon us. He has removed his hand. He is removing his hand of restraining grace. And he is letting us have what our culture so desperately desires. It may be helpful to recall at this point that Paul was writing this letter to the Romans. You know where he was when he wrote it? Corinth. He was in Corinth a city notorious for its sexual immorality and debauchery. As William Hendrickson reminds us, the expression to live like a Corinthian meant to live a life of moral degradation. That is, God puts them in the custody of their own desires. He lets them be arrested by their own desires. As a modern preacher who is lived in America for 57 years. That would be me. It is very easy to build a bridge between first century Roman Empire and 21st century America. Anyone with a rudimentary knowledge of the social upheaval and the seismic shifts that were taking place in the 1960s will immediately connect the dots. At first, the sexual revolution seemed like the foolish musings and activities of a bunch of free-spirited college kids. But it was actually blatant rebellion against God. And though they were repeatedly called to repentance by the faithful preachers of their time, they persisted anyway, and they mocked the word of the Lord. And so God began unleashing his judgment. He turned them over to their own desires. He shackled them to their own lusts. He allowed them to become enslaved to the things they desired most. What was the source of their unbridled lust? Well, they were so eager to cast aside God's faithful counsel on sexual ethics and moral responsibility. Verse 25 suggests that it began when they adopted a warped view of God. It's not like they were saying, we don't believe in God. It was more like, we don't believe in that God. And they didn't stop being religious. They just created their own religion. They created their own God. And Paul says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So you see, beloved, as I said last week, the person of God, listen carefully, all eyes up here for a second, the person of God is in himself ultimate reality. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You exist because He created you. This world exists. This world upon which we live and 
and from which we benefit so much. All of it is a gift from the creative hand of God. He created us, and we are responsible to him. We will be held accountable by him. And when a man or a woman denies ultimate reality, the ultimate reality of the the cosmos, namely God himself, when a man or woman begins denying that reality, they begin drifting off course until they find themselves irredeemably shipwrecked. They didn't realize in the 1960s what God was doing, but the God they were abandoning was actually abandoning them to heterosexual lust of every kind in their hearts. Now, at first, they may, that may sound not so bad, but my friends, listen, listen carefully. The worst thing You ready for this? The worst thing that ever could happen to a sinner is that God would abandon him. The worst thing that could happen to a sinner is that God would allow him to go on sinning without any divine restraint. Why? Because there is a God. And we are accountable to him. Not only that, but there are consequences. There are consequences to sin. Puritan pastor Jeremiah Burroughs in his book, Gospel Worship, offers a stunning contribution here. He was preaching a sermon on God's judgment against Aaron's sons. You remember because on the day of their ordination, they presented strange fire. Here's what Burroughs says. I beseech you, brethren, to consider this. God stands upon nothing more than to appear to all the world to be a holy God. There's the glory of God's name in an imminent way. God does not so much stand upon this to appear to be a strong God, to appear to be a powerful God, to be a God of patience, long-suffering God. God does not so much stand to be an omniscient God, though these attributes are dear to him, but rather that he appears to be a holy God. He is resolved that he shall have the glory of his holiness above all things. Therefore, he must judge sin. He must judge it. And so in Romans 1, God unleashes his judgment. He abandons them. He abandons sinners. He abandons nations to their sexual lusts. Secondly, God abandons them to their passions. This is really just more of the same. Look at verses 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women 
and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. God abandons them, first of all, to heterosexual lusts. But that didn't satisfy their depraved thirst for more. And so a God abandons them to homosexual lust. In our own country, when we got to the 1980s, the sexual revolution mutated into a homosexual revolution. In verse 26, some versions say, for, listen to the next word, for even their women. That seems to be an appropriate emphasis here. We might expect the men to be brutish and unrefined and reckless in every area of life, but for the women to plunge themselves into such unnatural relations with other women was difficult even in the first century for people to imagine. You remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 when Paul is after the Corinthians because there was a man who was sleeping with his father's wife and he says, not even the Gentiles do that. Even the Gentiles know that's wrong. This was unconscionable. Nevertheless, in Paul's order, the women were the first to push for a homosexual revolution. And then the men did the same. They were consumed with passion for other men and suffered the due penalty of their error. You may say, Pastor, are you suggesting that the, the, the virtual pandemic of STD and AIDS that began in the 1980s and 90s may have been God's judgment on those who practice such things? No, I am declaring it outright. And I'm not saying that everyone who has contracted that disease contracted it because of sin. That is not true. That is not true. But along with declaring that he was turning people over to their lusts, along with it came the natural consequences, the consequential judgment of God, which not only affected the people who were directly affected by it, but by those who were close to them and who were innocent of such crimes against God. Nevertheless, not even that would bring them to repentance, so God gave them over to a third thing, to a debased or depraved mind. Look at verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Since they still did not see fit to acknowledge God and having discarded the God-ordained pleasures of marital love for a perverted contrivance of sexual sin, God abandoned them to a debased, or I think the King James says, a depraved mind. Now, Pandora's box is fully open. It's flung open wide. All restraints are off. There's, there's no longer a brake pedal on man's increasingly deviant, destructive desires. Now, at this point, some of you may be 
feeling a surge of indignation against people who practice such sin. And some of you are thinking, oh, those, those wicked homosexuals. And I would just say, be careful. Because Paul's not done. He isn't finished. And from here, he offers a list of sins that are so universally practiced by mankind that R.C. Sproul rightly says that if you can make it through this whole list without feeling any pangs of conscience, you're a psychopath. <laughs> we only have time to read the list. I remember one time I sent my boys down in a in a moment when I was dealing with their sin, and I said, hey, I'm, I want to talk to you about Galatians 5. And, and one of my boys, very biblically literate at the time, although they were young, and, and uh, one of them said, oh, fruit of the Spirit. And I said, not that list. <laughs> I'm going to read the deeds of the flesh, and I want you to raise your hand every time one of them is identified in your own life. You identified in your own life. I started reading and they became charismatic. Their hands were just going up. You know, yep, that one, that me, this is me, this is me, yep, that's my. And you know what? Paul ends that, that list by saying, I've warned you before, I'm warning you again, that people who practice such things, listen, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Which means... In layman's terms, people who act like that go to hell. You experience the full and just wrath of God. You call yourself a Christian, and maybe you're not. And by the way, Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians, does the same thing in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians. He gives a list mostly of sexual sins, and at the end he says, I've warned you about this. People who act like this go to hell. So here's what we read in verses 29 through 32. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Now, that's an important phrase, and I, I, I should just read the text, right? But I can't help it. The whole point of Romans is to answer the question, where does righteousness come from? And why is that the primary question? That's the primary question because our problem is unrighteousness. We need a righteousness that we, that we desperately need, and we don't have it, and we can't earn it. So how do we get it? And the answer is Christ for righteousness. But they, again, he's speaking of all mankind. He's trying to help us understand that there are no exceptions. If you think this morning, you're hearing my voice, and you think you're the exception to this because you're not bad enough to deserve God's wrath, then you're missing Paul's whole point. How many people sin and fall short of the glory of God? Do you remember the number? All. And he even divides it up. Right now he's speaking of the Gentiles, the nations. And then beginning in chapter 2, starting next week, he's going to start talking about the Jews. Because the Jews are thinking, oh, those crummy Gentiles. Paul's talking about the crummy Gentiles. And Paul says, wait till chapter 2. The Gentiles only got one chapter. You're going to get a chapter and a half. They were filled with all 
they that is us, right? Now, in your heart, in your heart, I want you to raise a finger or raise a hand every time I hit something that describes you. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder. In case you think you aren't guilty of that, Jesus said, if you, if you were sinfully angry against your brother, you've already murdered him in your heart. Strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. They are slanderers. They are haters of God. They are insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. Children, if you think you haven't been hit yet, listen to this. Disobedient to parents. In the same list as homosexuality. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. And what is the them? I know your mind went right back to homosexuality. We just don't want this to apply to us. Listen, can I help you with this? If the problem doesn't apply to you, neither does the remedy. If you don't see yourself as sinful in the ways that Paul's described here, and maybe homosexuality is not a temptation for you, fine. There's like 20 other things in the list. Do you not see yourself there? Jesus did not come for the righteous, but to the, for the unrighteous. Do you not see yourself as unrighteous? I, um, I have the privilege, not one that I, I sought in any way, shape, or form. I have had the privilege on a number of occasions of counseling young men who have struggled with unwanted same-sex attraction. And they were in good churches. I love talking to those young men. Because they feel enslaved to it. I love giving them the hope of the gospel. Because you know what? Their sin isn't any worse than your gossip and your slander and your doing and saying things that communicate that while you say you believe in God from the heart, you have to admit that you actually hate him because you don't want him telling you not to do what you are doing. See, beloved, all have sinned. This is Paul's point. 
He sets you up with the thing that you think is the worst kind of sin, that, worst, that, 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 re, that requires the worst kind of judgment, and then he throws everybody else into that category. We're all in the same pot. Aren't you glad this is not the end of the book of Romans? If it were, we would all be doomed. If it were, then let us eat and drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. Though we may be filled with all manner of unrighteousness, God sent his one and only son to fulfill the righteousness we needed and to pay for all of our unrighteousness by bearing in his body the full measure of the holy wrath of God in our place. There is a gospel dynamic I want to mention before we finish. As we think of the wrath of abandonment, we need to be encouraged by the fact that often by the sovereign kindness of God, that sometimes his abandonment is not final. It is true abandonment. But in the mystery of his sovereign grace, it's not a permanent abandonment. Sometimes he abandons the sinner for a season to expose their need. And, and then he swoops in by the power of his redeeming grace to rescue us as a brand from the fire. You know how I know that? I know it from the text. And it is my testimony. And I know it is for many of you. Many of you. Or you would confess, and some of you have stood before this congregation and on Thanksgiving and shared your testimony, and we've heard it. That there was a period of time when it seemed like God just lifted his hand away from you and let you have your sin. And you went deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, and you became enslaved to that sin. And then one day, then one day Jesus showed up in your life, and he said something that you will never forget from his word. Come to me all of you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You realize that's a gospel invitation. To the woman at the well, she had five husbands. Talk about sexually involved in every inappropriate way. Maybe not every. To her, Jesus revealed himself first as the Messiah. If you knew to whom you were speaking and the water that he would give, you would ask him and he would give you living water that would well up from your heart to eternal life. This is what he says to sinners. This is what he says to the ones who were objects of God's wrath. Listen, you will never understand the glory of the gospel until you understand the terror of God's abandonment. 
We see pictures of this through the Bible. We see it with Job. We see it in the Lord's Prayer, by the way. Uh, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The word evil there is not neuter, it's masculine. It should be translated the evil one. Pray, pray that you would not be turned over to the evil one, right? Abandoned. You think of any instruction on church discipline. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, regarding that man sleeping with his father's wife, I have already, I have already turned him over to Satan. What's that? It's abandonment. And whenever someone in the church body has sinned so egregiously that it warrants putting them out of the church, the reason we plead with them and plead with them and plead with them is because to put them out of the church means to, to be put outside of that institution that God has ordained to use not only for your salvation but for your preservation and for your rescue. If you are put out of the church, then you are abandoned. You're abandoned. You are left to yourself It's the worst place you could possibly be if you're enslaved to sin. You know, that's that's, that's why our biblical counseling ministry here is so vital. People need to not just hear sermons. They need to sit down with people who know the word of God and say, this is what God says about you. This is the problem. Here's the remedy. I'm here for you. I don't know how to serve you better than, at this point, than simply reading to you from Stephen Carnock, Charnock, from his massive tome entitled The Existence and Attributes of God. And in that book, he, he writes this. Not all the vials of judgment that have, that have or shall be poured out upon the wicked world, nor the flaming furnace of a sinner's conscience, nor the irreversible sentence pronounced against the rebellious demons, nor the groans of the damned creatures give such a demonstration of God's hatred of sin as the wrath of God let loose upon his Son. Never did divine holiness appear more beautiful and lovely, then at that time our Savior's countenance was marred in the midst of his dying groans. This he himself acknowledges in Psalm 22. When God had turned his smiling face from him and thrust his sharp knife into his heart, which forced the terrible cry from him, my God, my God, why have you, what's the next word, forsaken me? God abandoned his son so that he didn't have to abandon you. Friends, all of this talk about the wrath of God will feel laborious and heavy and even crushing to your soul if it doesn't drive you to the cross where Jesus bore all God's judgment in his body on the cross for all who believe. Do you believe?
Father, these are terrible truths. I tremble to preach them. I confess that I am an unworthy servant to deliver them. But, oh, Father, those who have been forgiven much love much. We are amazed at your patience. We're amazed at how you've persevered with us. We are amazed that though your wrath is severe, yet you have been so kind to us. I pray, Father, this morning that there would not be a lost person among us who is not rescued by your Spirit this very day. I pray, Father, that you would grant the grace of salvation, the grace of redemption, the grace of forgiveness, the grace of reconciliation, the grace of faith to believe and receive from your hand eternal life instead of eternal wrath. These things we pray in the name of our Savior who purchased it all for us. Amen.